Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 148. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So it's that time of the year again, people. The Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. This is a competition we run through our discussion forums, where you listeners get to decide the best Drabble of 2009 and the best story of 2009. The winner of Best Story receives the much-coveted Sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory. This is a pretty big deal for us here at the Drabblecast. It's a way to honor writers who win over the hearts of our audience with their creativity. The Sacred Chalice is pretty badass, but knowing fans loved your story above all the rest is the real prize. So, round one is open the next two weeks. Go to the People's Choice Awards section of our discussion forums, linked from our main page, Drabblecast.org, and nominate your top five favorite stories and Drabbles between episodes 101 and 147. And that includes stories from our Drabblecast B-Sides podcast. You'll find a list of all the stories there, too, to help you harken back. After two weeks, we'll take the top five nominated stories in both categories and open voting polls to narrow down a winner. So get on in there and support your favorite story, fool. This is a strange world we live in, so we here at the Drabblecast like to keep you people in the know. We bring you Drabble News. Check this. Washington, D.C., from Glossy News Press. On Friday, in a late business wrap-up, the U.S. Congress accidentally gave back the state of South Dakota to the Oglala Sioux Indian tribe. Reports have surfaced that an obscure bill, which was supposed to cede a 100-acre parcel of land back to the Oglala, had a small typographic error in the official copy, which accidentally ceded back the entire state. Whoops. President Obama signed the measure into law without reading it later that afternoon. A group of South Dakota Republican state legislators stated that the acts were illegal and the law obviously a mistake. However, federal lawmakers are now into a two-week recess and are not available to set the motion right. When asked if he would rescind his signature, President Obama replied, It isn't my place to redo the work of Congress. If Congress has decided to give South Dakota back to the Indians, well, I support that. My signature stands. Anyways, it's just South Dakota, so who gives a f***? Tribal leaders stress that the law makes sense and sets the record right. They're encouraging non-violent takeovers of businesses and properties before Congress has a chance to change the laws. With a rallying cry that echoes the president's own resounding words, Sioux protesters surround and picket local businesses with the same message. It's just South Dakota. It's just South Dakota. It's just South Dakota. A spokesman for the Oglala tribe said on Monday, 
you know, this is one of those situations where you can't make everybody happy. The president is going to be called an Indian giver if he reverses this bill. Uh, but if he lets it stand, people will call him an Indian giver anyways because he, he's giving to Indians. So, uh, But meanwhile, we keep getting called Indians. And the politically correct term is actually Native American. This is Norm Sherman reporting for Drabble News. There you go. High five, Oglala tribe. South Dakota may not be much, but at least you get a card now. And if you're lucky, it'll be a cannon, and then you'll have a set. And then you can trade them in for armies on your next turn and take out Alberta, Northwest Territory, Alaska, and maybe even Kamachka. It's all about that land bridge. So, our story this week is called The Last Great Clown Hunt, and it comes to us from writer Chris First. Chris lives in upstate New York, where he works as an editor. He's a graduate of Clarion West, and his stories have appeared in Weird Tales, Talking Back, Fantasies, and Captain Kid Monthly. This story first appeared in Weird Tales back in January. Special thanks to Dave Thompson over at Podcastle for referring it to us. So, without further ado, The Last Great Clown Hunt by Chris First. It was clown hunting weather. The leaves of the box elders were beginning to turn in the draws that cross-stitched the Muscle Shell River country. Frost fastened on the dry summer grass. I rose early one morning and marked a pair of trumpeter swans forging south under a bank of fast-moving clouds, their calls torn away in the ragged wind that smelled of burnt sugar. It was time. Time to gather up the musty costumes, clean the slide whistles, bag up the guns, and spin the lures of cotton candy. My name is Jack Wilson. Ever since back in 22, I've worked as a guide, leading wealthy hunters who hope to bag the coveted Three Ring Slam, a trophy clown from every major tribe. Along with my tracker, Stone-Faced Keaton, I've hunted renegades from the Montana reservations every fall and smeared the faces of fat city men with the ritual blood and grease paint from their kills. But 15 years is a long time in this game, and the prey dwindles every year. It wasn't always that way. My father was the first clown agent for the Emmett Kelly reservation, I remembered how he would take me and my brother, Billy Boy, along on his visits to the clowns, and how we watched that day when the tribes first arrived. Wave upon wave they came, the Kellys and their subsidiary tribes, the Chuckos with their whirling carousel hats, the yipping zips, and the small band of Jojos spreading through the valley on their wagons and elephants. It seemed there was no end to them. Hundred-year-old flivers flopped in on limpin' tires, disgorging scores of clowns. Bedraggled jugglers held dirty nine-pins limp by their sides. Their faces brightened a little when they saw us rubes. Two weary elephants, dinky and snaggletusk, dragged the steam calliope into the shade of a solitary cottonwood. <sighs> Billy Boy gaped at that straggling procession and toddled after the shaman a gaunt giant sporting a battered top hat. 
Chief Harry Eyeball jolted up in his square-tired peace arrow to parley with my father. Harry Eyeball stood proud in his baggy brown pants, greasy shirt and filthy waistcoat, his wig and tie askew, his shabby derby hat set at a careless angle, and three days stubble shading through his makeup. He tripped on his floppy brogans and somersaulted to attention. What the hay, he said. Put her there. Father reached out to shake hands and received a jolt from the ceremonial hand buzzer. Sent him sprawling in the dirt. Allow me, said Harry Eyeball, bowing to dust off Father's suit. He squirted him with a lapel flower, then spent a long minute pulling a knotted rainbow print kerchief from his coat pocket. He wiped Father's face and stuffed the kerchief into his sleeve. The chief signaled that the preliminaries were over with a mighty blast on the klaxon. Well met, John Wilson. Well met, Harry Eyeball. Father turned to the throng and welcomed all the clowns to the reservation. The chief chuckled and, speaking through a megaphone, launched into his patter. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, looks like this here's going to be our headquarters for the duration. A chorus of slide whistles drew out a mournful minor tune. Harry Eyeball raised his arms and gestured for silence. I know we've given up a lot, but from what I can see, this looks like our last best place. Come on, let's get to work. We have a circus to run, and for Zoot's sake, what are those elephants? The calliope hissed to life, and the clowns passed the cigar butt before they erected the big top and the sideshow tents. Even in defeat, they were magnificent. My wife, Lucy, was caught up in the Portland Massacre. She was working as a mime when a berserker clown codger grabbed her off the street to use as a human shield. I never knew if it was the police or the clowns who'd shot her, but after Lucy's death, something changed in me, and I moved back to Montana. There were some guides who used laugh tracks, bicycle horns, amplified kazoos, and calliope detectors, but I was determined that my clients earn their kill the old way. Classic guns. Nothing automatic, nothing high-tech. A minimum of sound effects. One had to be careful to make a clean kill, too, for a wounded clown could turn on the hunter, or worse yet, maul a client. I carried a rifle and a revolver for just such instances. I brought down renegades for the government too, but I was developing less and less taste for that work. Entire tribes of clowns had been wiped out. The Bardies, the Cocos, the Rudy Kazooties. Now even the proud Karamazovs and the once numerous Bozos were reduced to bands of pitiful remnants that eked out livings as exhibits at Ripley's museums across the country. I was throwing bundles of bottle rockets into the back of the pickup when Crosswhite, the new regional clown agent, called from Bozeman. Wilson, he shouted, there's been a breakout. Yeah, I don't see how that's any of my business. 
There wasn't any love lost between us. Crosswhite was CEO of the Nimrod Channel and an ambitious, mean lickspittle, fresh into a DC political appointment and sent by the Interior Department to deliver the clowns an ultimatum. Hand over the renegades, or see their winter supplies cut off. I can make it your business, he said. I heard the smile in his voice. Billy Boy's gone grease paint, and he's leading the renegades. I want you to bring him in. What's my brother got to do with it? He's a performance artist in Santa Barbara. This is bullshit, Crosswhite. Let somebody else clean up your mess. Billy Boy had always identified with the clowns more than I had. I admired clowns for their anarchy, for their free lives on the prairie under the big top. But for Billy Boy, it was love. From the very first day he met them, when he rode with that shaman atop Snaggletusk, he knew that he belonged with the clowns. At 16, he underwent the secret initiation rites and became a member of the Emmett Kellys. How far had he gone this time? Come on, Crosswhite. I doubt Billy Boy would even show up in Montana, let alone lead some breakout. Crosswhite laughed. Wilson, are you listening to me? They're grabbing hostages. Your brother's in trouble up to his big red wig. The Kellys made him their new chief. That stopped me for a moment. That's not possible, I said. Wilson, Harry Eyeball is dead. The cold wind cut through my parka. Billy Boy and that crazy old shaman runs with scissors. They're going around like the Messiah and John the Baptist, talking to the other tribes, preaching the stilt dance. They think the clowns can recover their old power. I had glimpsed the stilt dancers only once. Billy Boy and I were watching them through a gap in the big top when the shaman caught us. He ran me off, but he allowed Billy Boy to stay. I still had a hard time picturing Billy Boy as one of them. To me, he'd always seemed like a clown wannabe. And he's got Catlin, said Crosswhite. A year ago, Keaton and I had accompanied the artist Fitzhugh Catlin on a last-ditch expedition to capture the major clown chiefs in paint before they died out. Every day for three months, Catlin set up blocks of velvet on his easel and painted the clown chiefs, Barnums, and ringmasters I'd forced to stand before him. We lived in tents and wagons, shared the clowns' simple but hearty fare, the corn dogs and the cotton candy, the cracker jacks and snow cones. We drank deep from barrels of pink lemonade or tipped back gulps of Mickey's big mouth. I grew strong and content on the food and the outdoor air, but I knew, as we followed the clowns on their way to winter quarters, that they suffered my presence only because my brother had taken the initiation. Can't the feds handle this? I asked. A bet and a breakout, hmm? Well, that's, that's good for about ten years, Wilson, he said. Of course, we could also sell the ranch poor and corget les autres. I heard him shuffling some papers. Then there is the tiny problem of your contract. Pinchot was far too lax with you, Wilson. You still owe us a year out of your life. I looked south. A figure was running at a steady pace along the river road, kicking up dust. It had to be Keaton. I recognized his skinny frame even at a distance. All right, what do you want? I sighed. Bring in Billy Boy. Minimum violence, minimum fuss, and I get to film. 
Let me tell you about Keaton. First thing anyone noticed was his dour, impassive expression that never changed, even in battle. Keaton, he had no first name as far as anyone knew, was the best tracker in the business, able to sniff out circus smells from miles off. Roasted peanuts, cheese popcorn, cotton candy, stale beer, moldy canvas, elephant dung, and the blood trail of killer clowns. If a clown put on a polka dot, Keaton knew about it. If a motorcycle clown gelled his liberty spikes, Keaton caught it on the wind. The clowns considered him a traitor for helping the hunters and made no secret of marking him for special torture if he would ever be caught. He was also remarkably brave. During the brief clown war, he distinguished himself when he carried Major Vegas from the field at the Battle of the Little Big Top. I'm told that the savage Cocos counted coup on Keaton more than 60 times, yet he never faltered. I trusted him with my life, in a bar fight as much as on a hunt. Once we went to San Francisco for some R&R, and one night we took in a show at a comedy club. Maybe we were making a mistake. At his lowest point, Keaton had worked as a rodeo clown in Sawdust Pete's Wild Clown Show, but he'd quit in disgust. Maybe I should have paid attention to the twitch at the corner of his mouth. Both of us had been drinking, enjoying the tour through the beers of the world, when the first performer took the stage. I don't know what was so disappointing about the show other than the fact that it was a collection of rimshot jokes and jousts with hecklers. I so wanted that comedian to wear grease paint, a whirly-gig hat, a bulbous nose, and floppy shoes. Our mood grew ugly, and I had to hold back Keaton from assaulting the headliner, an overpaid, overcurled, overdried, red-haired young man in a horizontal striped shirt. The club's bouncer punched Keaton, but my tracker merely licked away the trickle of blood from his lower lip. Keaton shielded his eyes with his left hand and peered intently toward the back of the club. He pivoted to face in the opposite direction and shielded his eyes with his right hand, staring out into the street. He removed a large title card from inside his shirt. In elaborate woodcut lettering, it read, Give up yet? The bouncer was infuriated and swung at Keaton again, but Keaton feigned right and the bouncer punched the bricks instead. We made our exit. Keaton and I prepared to bring in Billy Boy and rescue Catlin and the hostages. I put on a belt of false noses and a polka dot camo shirt. I wore a new orange wig so I could approach clowns without spooking them. Keaton removed his pork pie hat, dipped his index finger into a jar of molasses, drew an oval on the top of his scalp, and clamped a crumpled, blood-stained war boater on his head. We were ready. We set out before dawn for the camp of the Emmett Kellys. As we came over a rise, I saw the big top, a disheveled memory of the magic I remembered from childhood, its canvas torn and stained with mildew. Greasy smoke curled from under the tent flap, Dinky the elephant, emaciated, held his trunk in his mouth and shook his head from side to side while doing a mad little shuffle at the end of his chain. He'd worn a circle three feet deep and rubbed the skin raw on his trunk. Snaggletusk's skull and twisted ivory stood guard above the entrance of the funhouse. Faded wigs hung from the eaves. Are you getting this? Crosswhite asked the cameraman. I warned them all to say nothing until Catlin and the other hostages were well away. I cared little what happened to Crosswhite, but I felt uneasy about endangering the camera crew. 
A hostile reception party met us at the center of camp. Kelly Two-Step blew a blast on the air horn. Billy Boy came out of his tent to parley. I hadn't seen my brother in seven years and was unprepared for the changes in him. In addition to the Kelly's sad clown makeup, he'd pasted decals of the decimated tribes on his forehead. What the hay, Billy Boy? What the hay? What the hay, Jack? Long time. Billy Boy crossed his puffy sleeves over his chest and examined us. I see you bring guns and cameras. Which one will you shoot first? I hope it doesn't come to that, Billy Boy. Let the hostages go. Stop the stilt dance. We'll give you safe conduct back to the reservation. That's a lot of conditions. We'll see. Let us parley. As he motioned me toward his tent, Billy Boy caught sight of Keaton and stopped. You know, it's bad enough that my own brother deals in death, but you dare to bring the traitor Stoneface Keaton to my camp? He spat at the tracker's feet. Brazen young clowns approached Keaton and honked their klaxons in his ears and threw confetti in his eyes, but he stood imperturbable as ever. Others surrounded the cameraman and the sound man and somersaulted over their equipment bags. The tallest of the Kellys, the old shaman, runs with scissors, strode from the funhouse and wrenched away Crosswhite's leather bag. Velvet sketches for Catlin's series on the extinct tribe spilled to the ground. Ho, 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 said Runs with Scissors. Look at what we have here, boys and girls. An excited honking arose and just as quickly died. The Kellys silently passed the velvet boards amongst themselves. Real tears rolled down the painted cheeks they dabbed with giant handkerchiefs. Billy Boy held the sketch of Harry Eyeball at arm's length. He gazed at the old chief's picture so intensely, I thought he was trying to x-ray it. Come with me, said Billy Boy. I want you to see something. The camera crew stays outside. We entered the big top, followed by runs with scissors. Inside, Light slanted into the tent through a rent in the roof. Catlin was lashed to the center pole, encased in a thick layer of pink cotton candy. He looked like a giant cocoon with a man's head sticking out. Stilt dancers whirled around him in the center ring and squirted him with water rifles. I don't know how he'd managed to withstand such torture, but he was alive. Under the disapproving eye of runs with scissors, we sat down in the ringside seats. Good God, Wilson, whispered Crosswhite. You gotta stop this. Keaton flashed a title card at Crosswhite. It read, Silence. Let Catlin go, Billy Boy, I said. Billy Boy ignored me and selected a pair of red and white stilts from a bundle near the seats. He tied on the stilts and waited to enter the dancer's circle. At a signal from the shaman, the dancers parted. Billy Boy was transformed the moment he stepped into the ring. He led the intricate steps of the stilt dance, shuffling clockwise and counterclockwise around the center pole, circling closer to Catlin in even tighter rings, faster and faster, all the while sustaining a tremolo on the slide whistle. Billy Boy danced for maybe an hour before corkscrewing out of the circle. 
the dancers followed him and rested against poles and guy wires. I had a vision as I danced, said Billy Boy, untying the straps and removing his stilts. This artist's death would serve me no purpose. We cannot win this way. Let him go. Angry shouts rose from the stilt dancers. But power demands a sacrifice, <laughs> said shot from cannon. Yeah, and uh, Catlin steals souls, said Reedy Pagliaccio. He must pay with his life. Runs with scissors, clearly upset by Billy Boy's decision, but deferring to the chief's authority, was trying to hold back the more volatile stilt dancers. Cut him down, said Billy Boy. I have spoken. Keaton and I broke the hard casing of cotton candy and cut Catlin down. He sagged between us. Billy Boy led us from the tent. The crowd of clowns murmured angrily when they saw that we had Catlin. My brother tried to calm the Emmett Kellys, but slapsticks and slide whistles began to rain down upon us. What about the other captives? demanded Crosswhite. Keaton turned to slip Catlin away from the camp, but a small knot of clowns in unfamiliar dress blocked them and began launching themselves off the teeter-totter, all the while keeping a flight of nine-pins in the air. Crosswhite panicked and fired at Billy Boy. The bullet grazed the chief's scalp. The clowns surrounded their leader for a moment, then turned as one, whooping and honking and attacking us. <laughs> We ran downhill toward the cover of the trees. I looked back and saw Runs with Scissors tear off his ringmaster trousers. The shaman was strapped into a giant pair of red scissors. He stalked to the funhouse and pulled on a tasseled cord. The false front of the funhouse fell forward, revealing the hostages in cramped cages behind a display of fireworks. Clowns were stuffing hostages 20 to a Volkswagen Beetle, torching the tires and sending the cars hurtling towards us. The cars burst into flames and smashed into the trees. Burning bodies spilled out onto the ground. There was nothing we could do for them. Keaton held up two title cards. Watch out. Pinch your movement. But it was too late. Swooping down the brow of the hill, a unit of berserker clowns snapped giant clacking pinchers. They pierced the unfortunate camera crew again and again, even after they were dead. Only Keaton's quick shooting kept us alive. I don't know how we did it, but we began to get the better of them. Dead and wounded clowns littered the earth. Runs with scissors was gravely wounded, and his scissors shattered. A handful of stilt dancers and berserkers gathered around him, chanting the death dirge. The old shaman pulled a Zippo lighter out of his hat, flicked it open, and tossed it into the fireworks. Under the big top, brothers. Under the big top. Keaton and I looked at each other. For the first time I could recall, he raised his right eyebrow. In his hand was a title card. Duck! The funhouse burst asunder in a shower of jagged shards and shrieking rockets and fiery wigs. Shot from cannon rode the back of a red Molotov before he too blew up in the afternoon sky. Snaggletusk's skull landed five feet from our hiding place. The big top caught fire, its flaming canvas moaning like a dying animal. 
Random bottle rockets ignited the sideshows, and the entire circus burned to the ground. Dinky, unchained, fled past us into the Badlands. We limped back to our field camp, a clearing in a glade of aspens. We fell exhausted and lay in grim repose. Jack! Billy Boy shouted from the Aspens. See how many fine clowns have died today? Why do we do this? You're not going to negotiate with him, are you? Said Crosswhite. Come into the clearing, Billy Boy, and we'll talk a while. I shouted back. I walked out toward the edge of the trees and waited for Billy Boy. He was dressed in his full regalia as chief of the Emmett Kellys. A shot fired behind me. Billy Boy was wounded in the shoulder and he ran into the cover of the trees. I turned. Cross White, you damn fool. We stood, glaring at each other, our guns raised, until Keaton intervened. He withdrew a thick stack of title cards from his shirt, fumbling with them before he found the ones he wanted. Wait, read the first card. I'll go after him, read the second. Both cards had bullet holes in the top left corner. Ten minutes later, Keaton came out of the Aspen Grove dragging Billy Boy on an orange sleeping bag and stopped beside our camp in the middle of the clearing. Blood seeped from an ugly wound on Billy Boy's left shoulder. A shallow groove ran red where a bullet had grazed his skull and his blood-damp hair hung down over his right eye. Kapok leaked out of rants in his sleeves. Keaton leaned Billy Boy against some duffel bags piled next to the lean-to. Crosswhite came forward, his rifle pointed at my chest. He's mine, damn it! Get out of the way, I'm taking the last shot! He raised the old Winchester and motioned Keaton to step aside. Keaton placed himself between Crosswhite and Billy Boy. Wilson, barked Crosswhite, control your man! I stepped closer to Crosswhite and nodded to Keaton. Why don't you just shoot me too, Crosswhite? Cause you're gonna have to, you know. There aren't any cameras now to catch your heroics, so why don't you just go ahead? I don't care if he's your brother, Wilson. He's vermin. I caught Crosswhite in the bridge of his nose with the butt of my rifle and sent him sprawling in the greasy grass. Then I picked up the antique Winchester and fired a shot into the ground by his head. Crosswhite, groaning and holding his shattered nose, screamed and tried to roll away. Oh, bastard! He sputtered, spitting blood and broken teeth. I levered out the rest of the bullets, gripped the barrel, and brought the stock down again and again on a granite boulder until the wood crazed and flew out in long splinters. I jammed the muzzle into a crevice in the rock and jumped on the barrel, bent it out of true, and tossed it into the woods. Keaton motioned me toward Billy Boy, who sat propped against Crosswhite's gear. Hey, Billy Boy. He popped open one puffy eye and stared upward. He chuckled for a moment, then a spasm went through his body and he coughed up bright arterial blood. Jack, it's you, he whispered when the coughing stopped. It's all right, Billy Boy. I sat down and cradled him in my arms. Try not to speak. He smiled weakly under the grease-paint frown. 
With his wounded right hand, he fumbled in his pants pocket and took out a giant two-foot comb and a rubber chicken covered in blood and a leaky can of silly string and a strand of knotted scarves and another strand of scarves and a rusty slinky and a ball of purple play-doh and yet another strand of scarves and finally the dented klaxon that was his badge of office. Here, I want you to have it, he said. I took the klaxon from him, bulb end first, and squeezed out a loud auga that echoed throughout the clearing. Billy Boy was breathing like a wheezy concertina. You'll take me to the big top, won't you, Jack? They have clowns at the big top. He sighed for a long count, and I knew he was dead. Then I pressed his head against my own, smearing my face with blood and grease paint. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. This story is one of my personal favorites. I hope it gets some love for next year's People's Choice Awards, even though they're a long way off. We're running a little late this week, so we're going to push off our listener story feedback till next week. We do want to recognize our 100-character Twitfic winner, though, for this week. Micro story heavyweight Algernon Sidney is dead, with this little tale that we posted on Twitter earlier this week. I'm sorry, Doc Jones said. You've only got one month, tops. I've never been wrong. 28 days later, Doc Jones got his gun. Good times. Try writing one yourself. 100 characters, not counting spaces or title if you give it one. Post it in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums for everyone to see. Yours might be a winner. Also want to recognize the artist for this week's episode art, which I truly love. A rendering of Keaton in clown camo. The one and only Bo Kyer. Anyone who listens to our podcast, The Super Animal Mega Beast Deathmatch, knows who Bo is. But for those who don't, we asked Bo for a bio. Bo Kyer is a drain on society, seeping California tax dollars into Oswego, New York. Popular around these parts for his mega beastery, scam spamming, and cover arting, Bo hopes to set a Guinness World Record as the first to crab walk across the United States and back. That, or make some scratch freelancing. If you're curious, covetous, or have any visual needs he might satisfy, visit bowkire.com. There you go. So, that's our show. If you liked it, you can do us a solid and donate to us to help us pay authors for their work and for production costs, web stuff, and what have you. It's super easy to do. You just go to drabblecast.org and either click the big button that says Donate Once, and you'll be able to donate any amount you'd like, or you can click the button that says Subscribe for 5 bucks a month, and all your donor duties will be taken care of automatically. Five bucks a month. That's about $1.15 an episode. Less if you subscribe to our other story podcast, Drabblecast B-Sides. Pretty good use of a dollar, if you ask me. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, just give it away to your friends, family, and Native American tribes. Blog about us, write us a review on iTunes or wherever you feed from. We really appreciate it. Special closing music this week is Bozo the Clown by Evil Masquerade. 
Check them out at evilmasquerade.com. See you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that it's just South Dakota.
every five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.